Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. GX on Agriculture. With Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, it's day three of the Canadian Western Agribition in Regina. We'll hear from Agribition CEO Sean Kindop again, talking about uh, what is all planned for today. Also, a new company has raised $4 million to develop technology to provide farmers with lab-quality grain analysis right off the combine. Kyle Folk of Holdfast is the Chief Executive Officer of Ground Truth Agriculture. He's speaking today at the Grain Expo at the Canadian Western Agribition in Regina. Also coming up on today's program, an Australian with a PhD in animal breeding and genetics was a guest speaker in Regina for the annual Beef Breeds meeting held in conjunction with Agribition. We'll hear from Dr. Steve Miller. And Grain Week's 13, 14 and 15 rail performance is settling into a pattern and both railways are managing their demand. We'll hear from Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Agribition moves into day three today with guest speaker Sheldon Kennedy at the annual Grain Expo. The former hockey star, now a Saskatchewan farmer, will focus on mental health in the agriculture industry. Also, today is day two of the Indigenous Agriculture Summit. Agribition CEO Sean Kindop says today is another busy day. We kick off the Indigenous Agriculture Summit and the Canadian National Speckled Park Show. We move into some cattle dog shows. We've got the Grain Expo coming. We've got the Semental Show. We've got the rodeo kicking off tonight. We've got Sean Kennedy speaking at the Grain Expo. And yeah, we're excited to fill the Branson this evening. He's pleased with the attendance numbers so far this week. We're trending above 2019 numbers at the moment, as yesterday we were also above uh, 2019. Kindop is expecting a big crowd at the Agribition Rodeo tonight. Yeah, it is free, courtesy of Mosaic. They are offering free admission, and yeah, we're definitely uh, very proud of our attendance at the moment, especially uh, with the weather. The uh, you know, Saskatchewan people have, and international people have shown a lot of resiliency to be here, so we, uh, we appreciate that. He believes the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions is helping boost attendance this year. Yeah, it's, it's great when you when your travel is not, not restricted, but then with some of the snow and some of the, uh, the obstacles that people are facing, they have, uh, we had had some cancelled flights, but uh, we've had people rebook those flights and show up. So it just shows the testament to the event and how much people want to be here, and we, uh, we don't take that for granted for a minute. Kindop says plenty of international visitors have already arrived at Agribition. Yeah, we've got Australia, England, France, Mexico, Mongolia, Scotland, Singapore, Switzerland, USA, and Wales, just to name a few. And those were all in attendance last night at, uh, at our international reception. He expects those visitors to be pulling out their checkbooks this week. Yeah, and they're coming to look at the best of genetics. And we've got some fantastic animals and some 
fantastic genetics in this country and this province, and uh, they're all on display at Agribition. Kindop adds the trade show is huge this year. Yeah, we're up. We're up to almost 400 exhibitors this year, and it, uh, it's getting busier by the day. And we're looking forward to packing it for these people. Agribition continues today and wraps up on Saturday. Meanwhile, a new company has raised $4 million to develop technology to provide farmers with lab-quality grain analysis right off the combine. Kyle Folk of Holdfast is the chief executive officer of Ground Truth Agriculture. He speaks today at the Grain Expo at Canadian Western Agribition and he outlines his new invention. Ultimately, it's, it's for all farmers, not just Saskatchewan, but initially, you know, being located here in Saskatchewan, our focus is going to be first on the Saskatchewan farmers. But ultimately, what we're, what we're building is a product that will be able to go right on the combines and grade the grain in real time while the farmers are harvesting. And so they'll be able to get that quality at a per acre basis. He explains how that will benefit farmers. Well, right now, the process for farmers to get the grain quality is they sample it while they're putting it into the bin, and then they have to send little bags off to their prospective buyers and wait until they send that information back to them and tell them what grade it is. It says a few wrinkles in it, one being that those samples that they send off are, are never representative of the actual you know amount of grain that they've pulled off of those fields. Second, you know, there's no transparency there for the farmers. They don't have any control over the, you know, what, how to grade that and get that information. So they, their marketing ability is kind of handcuffed until they get that information back. Folks says you need to know your crop grade to know what your crop is worth. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's not uncommon for, you know, a farmer to send their, their sample off to be graded and they get that information back and then haul that contract in two months later only to have it graded again when they arrive and find out that it's a different grade than what they initially were told that it was. I mean, it, it's it's not that anybody in the process is trying to do anything facetious. It's just that the process itself needs some work and needs some help. So that's what we're trying to do. He says it's a device that attaches to your combine. Yeah, so it's an actual piece of hardware that goes on, on the combine that through a, a couple different means, through a picture, machine vision camera, and a near-infrared scan, we'll be able to tell you all kinds of information about your grain. Folk can't say what the device will retail for right now. We don't know yet exactly what it'll cost, but ultimately, you know, we're looking at a few different business models. Realistically, though, this is for farmers. We realize that this has to be very aligned with the farmer and, and provide an excellent ROI for their operation. He's managed to raise some money to develop the technology. So we just closed our seed round here where we raised $4 million, and it's fantastic. We've got a good group of shareholders on, a large contingent of Saskatchewan-based shareholders, so that's excellent. And, you know, it's fantastic to have them on, but really for us, our focus isn't just on raising the capital. That's a stepping stone to get us so that we can have a product that's available for market. Folk isn't sure when the devices will be available for sale. Well, we're, we're working away feverishly on that right now. I don't have a date exactly, but what I can tell you is, is we're doing our best to get this available as quick as we can. We were field testing this last harvest, and we plan to be doing the same at a little larger scale this coming harvest. And as for his presentation today at Agribition... Well, ultimately, yeah, the, the panel's about more of uh, kind of... I'm, working, I'm on the panel with a farmer that I know that we'll be doing some testing with. So the panel centered around that kind of relationship between farmer and startup company and how to, you know, work together to get a product to market. Folks says their technology should be available for sale 
within the next few years? Yeah, I'd say that's that's a general goal of ours. Um, the sooner the better, but yeah, as soon as it's ready. Kyle Folk of Holdfast is the CEO of Ground Truth Agriculture. He speaks at the Grain Expo today at Canadian Western Agribition. It's time now for the AgReview portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, AgReview. Large volumes of yellow peas being delivered into commercial hands have put some pressure on values, although prices remain reasonably solid. Green and maple pea bids are stronger, but movement is more limited in those markets. End users were active buyers of yellow peas in recent months, but many are now filled up, which is causing prices to soften, according to a grain broker with Johnston's Grain. Canadian farmers have delivered 1.2 million metric tons of peas into the commercial system through the first 16 weeks of the 2022-23 marketing year, according to the Canadian Grain Commission data. That was up by 20% from the same time a year ago. For green peas, prices have strengthened in the past month and are now holding steady. Maple peas can be a spotty market, but have seen some strong demand recently, with most of the movement to China for sprouting. Suncor Energy says it will retain its Petro-Canada gas station retail business, following a review the company initiated earlier this year under pressure from activist investor Elliott Investment Management. Suncor replaced its CEO in July and agreed to review its retail fuel unit by the end of this year after Elliott Investment, which owns 3% of the company, pushed for changes, flagging a poor safety record and lackluster stock performance. But Canada's second-largest oil producer decided against selling its fuel stations business after a review that included gauging interest from third parties. Earlier this year, analysts estimated the unit could be worth between $5 billion and $11 billion. Suncor owns 1,600 Petro-Canada stations, accounting for 18% of Canada's retail fuel sales, making the business one of the biggest in the country. Petro-Canada's operations also include bulk fuel delivery for farm and industrial customers across the country, as well as lubricant supply for farm construction and transport equipment. The Manitoba government is announcing the appointment of Brenda D. Serrano as the next Deputy Minister of Agriculture, effective January 7, 2023. D. Serrano has worked for the Manitoba government since 2005 and has been Assistant Deputy Minister of Analytical Services at the Provincial Treasury Board Secretariat since 2019. In this role, she has gained experience in the programs and services offered by all government departments, including Manitoba Agriculture. The appointment of Dee Serrano will follow the upcoming retirement of Dory Gingera Boschaman, who has been Deputy Minister since 2013 and has held many positions during her 43 years with Manitoba Agriculture. U.S. Congress is moving swiftly to prevent a looming job action by rail workers. Reporter Rachel Scott says the walkout is, could be a, a devastating blow to the nation's economy. 
President Biden is asking Congress to step in to prevent a rail strike. He spoke with congressional leaders at the White House and they want to move quickly. The House is expected to take up legislation that would impose a tentative agreement that President Biden and his administration helped negotiate back in September. The unions have threatened to strike if an agreement isn't reached before a December 9th deadline. And Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador says he's seeking a deal with Washington after the United States threatened legal action over Mexico's plan to ban genetically modified corn in 2024. After meeting with Mexican officials on Monday, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said Mexico's decree could violate the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade pact. Lopez Obrador looked to assuage those concerns, saying the ban was focused on genetically modified yellow corn for human consumption. Mexico is one of the biggest buyers of U.S. corn, with U.S. farmers sending about 17 million metric tons of corn to Mexico annually. U.S. farmers have been particularly concerned about the threat of a ban on GMO yellow corn for livestock feed. And that's the Ag Review portion of our program. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and minus 20 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. An Australian with a Ph.D. in animal breeding and genetics was a guest speaker in Regina Monday at the annual Beef Breeds meeting held in conjunction with Agribition. Dr. Steve Miller outlines his presentation. So we're talking about um, genetic improvement and, and selection tools to, to make genetic progress. And it focuses on the data, the data that you need to create um, what we call genomic predictions. So, you know, pulling a DNA sample on an animal and looking at that DNA and predicting the traits based on the, based on the DNA. But to do that, you actually need, you need the animals measured for the trait with the DNA to train the DNA for the, for the trait. So a lot of the message for Canada is um, developing those data sets to come up with really good geno- genomic predictions. Because the DNA is a great tool for the breeder because they can go out, pull, pull a DNA sample and get the prediction for the traits without having to measure them on the cattle themselves because they're measured on other cattle that are related. That's the kind of the take-home message there. He explains how Canadian cattle compare to Australian cattle. Canadian cattle are actually fairly uh, well represented in Australia and so if you go, if you are especially, well, Australia is very much split in terms of a north and a south industry and the north is very tropical so they got to have Brahmin cattle which we don't get them from Australia, from Canada but in the south it's very temperate and so there is quite a flow of genetics from Canada to Australia and I think if you were to go into most say Hereford and Angus pedigrees you'll find Canadian Canadian blood there so a lot of a lot of breeders would be familiar with and, and a lot of it has to do with well there's the quality of the cattle but also the health status of Canada because Canada can export embryos and semen to to Australia because of the health status that we have in the in the country uh, and I say we because I'm from Canada originally so that's the accents from Ontario Miller says Australian cattle producers are looking for specific genetics from Canada well there's um, a, a big a big thing for uh, 
in Australia is actually carcass quality. So they're getting paid for, say, marbling. There's actually serious premiums for marbling. So when they're looking for genetics, that's one of the that's probably one of the big attributes that they're looking for. But they'll be looking for it in Canadian cattle or American cattle or wherever wherever they can get it. He says marbling is very important in Australia. Yeah, so a big book like Canada, Australia's a big exporter, and a lot of the export goes to Asian Pacific Rim and up into Japan and Korea and those places, and they pay significant premiums for marbling in that higher end. Um, so one of the differences that we see, if you look at the breeds, like the breeds that are most prevalent and things, obviously we got the Brahmin influence for the tropical parts, but if we look at our genotyping rates, for example, Angus would be number one, and Angus is the biggest breed here in Canada, but number two for us is Wagyu. And Japanese. Yes, and it's that highly marbled, highly marbled breed, and so they're getting significant premiums for that marbling that we don't. It's a bit of a difference that we don't, we don't have the same trend. Even, even in the U.S., you know, the Angus and other breeds dominate, and Wagyu's not that prominent, but it's, it has become the number, number two breed there and continues to go up. Miller says marbling is said to add flavor to beef. Yep, there's um, definitely fl- flavor, but also, um, yeah, juiciness. So uh, overall eating quality, I guess, you, if, you, if, you were to, if you were to, you know, you line up, you line up um, consumers and you give them taste, you, you, do a taste, you do a taste test and things like that, they'll come back. Their overall liking is higher with, with more marbling, yeah. Now, I think some of the grades in that Wagyu category would, for example, it's it's um, something that I'm not used to, you know, and I think most Canadian consumers wouldn't be used to. It's it's pretty pretty extreme. Steve Miller was a guest speaker Monday in Regina at the annual Canadian Beef Breeds Council meeting. It's time now for the livestock market conditions and their presentation of the Yorkton Crossing Retirement Village. Livestock market conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for December are trading at 153.25 this hour. That's up 57. February live cattle trading at 155.80, up one full cent. January feeder cattle trading at 180.70, that's up 270. March feeder cattle trading at 183.45, up 227. December lean hogs trading at 83.05, up 197. February lean hogs trading at 85.87, up 172. And that's the livestock market conditions. Grain Week's 13, 14, and 15 rail performance is settling into a pattern, and both railways are managing their demand. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition, a consortium of grain companies and producer organizations. He explains what he observed over the past three weeks. Well, I think that for CP, uh, we could describe their performance over the last three weeks as uh, steady. Uh, They've come in each of those weeks, you know, between 82 and 86% order fulfillment which certainly was a step up from uh, what we had been seeing through September and uh, a good chunk of the month of October. CN, pretty good still, uh, maybe a little bumpier, if you will, than uh, CP over the course of the last three weeks, particularly week 14. 
where, you know, CN turned in its worst performance of the year at 73%. A part of that, uh, frankly, was driven by a high number of order cancellations that CN put in place. Uh, there's some debate as to why that might have happened, and we can touch on that perhaps uh, before we're done. But otherwise, they've been good. We do see some pretty consistent trends, uh, I think, developing. Uh, we've seen them over the last three weeks. And when we look back a little bit farther, I think both railways are settling into a bit of a pattern here, different, different for each railway. CN has now seemingly adopted a strategy of rationing orders in order to manage demand. Now, week, week 15, the most recent week, they managed to put in good performance, I think 92%. And they did it without rationing any orders, although in the seven weeks prior to that, they had rationed orders in every week, I think peaking in week 14 with more than 800 and most of those in the Vancouver corridor. CP, uh, as I said before, has seen much better performance the last three weeks, you know, arguably still below the threshold that industry would like to see, but certainly an improvement from what we saw early on in the year. And despite that, uh, we see CP continuing to carry outstanding orders from week to week to week to week. Now, if we go back to that particularly poor stretch that CP had between week six and 10, I think it was where they were, you know, 13, 14, 16, 1700 orders week after week after week that they weren't fulfilling and, and carrying forward. They have gotten better from there. I think in week 13, they had something like 740. They improved on that in week 14, down to 650. But then in week 15, despite the fact they, they had reasonably good order fulfillment performance at 82%, they're carrying 900 orders into week 16. So it's, you know, the downward improvement has kind of reversed itself. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what they come out of week 16 with. The other thing that we've noticed that seems to be settling in to a pattern is car spotting activity. Consistent with what CN is doing with respect to, you know, what I call managing their demand, their car spotting activity has stayed kind of consistent and has actually gone down in the last three weeks. Uh, CN for ATC shippers has spotted less than 5,000 cars in each of those weeks, which is lower than, you know, the previous three or the last two weeks. Now for CP, that is in some respects consistent with demand, which has dropped considerably. And there's a bit of a story behind that, which we can tuck up, uh, touch on if we have time. So that's kind of interesting to me. You know, CP's demand is down. They're spotting fewer cars and yet they continue to carry, you know, significant numbers of orders forward week to week to week. So that story in some respects doesn't quite align. Anyhow, all that being said, uh, I think uh, it's reasonable to say that for the most part, performance has been not too bad in recent weeks. A little bumpy for CN, pretty steady for CP. Although if you look over the course of the entire grain year so far, you would make the case that CN has been more consistent than CP because CP, as we know, had a particularly rough patch from about weeks 6 to 11 or so. I'll have more with Milt Poirier coming up right after this. We're back with Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting, who monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. 
He tells us what caught his eye on a provincial basis during Green Weeks 13, 14, and 15. Yeah, lack of it, I think, is fair to say. Spotty, if you will, but each of the provinces, probably I would say with the exception of Saskatchewan, which overall, uh, certainly in the last three weeks, has seen the most consistent, if not the best, performance of the three provinces from both railways. Manitoba has had a couple of fun weeks, two out of the last three weeks with CP in particular, where CP performance dropped below 60% uh, on an order fulfillment basis in Manitoba, both in weeks 13 and in week 15. And in the middle of that had a week at 81. Uh, Alberta has been a little less unstable, if you will, but with CN, you know, in week 13, they went from 82 and they dipped all the way to 58 in week 14, and then they bounced back to 91 in week 15. So a little bit all over the map, when you look inside the numbers, you kind of see a pattern between what's going on at a system level for CN and CP in specific corridors and how that's translating down into the provinces. So when Manitoba's performance tends to be poor, it tends to be because CP is not performing well in the Thunder Bay corridor. And when Alberta's performance tends to be poor, whether it be for uh, by CP or CN, it's because there's something going on in the Vancouver corridor because pretty much 100% of traffic that originates in Alberta is going to one of two places. That's Vancouver or Prince Rupert. And Prince Rupert has actually performed very well this year. Of course, that's only served by CN. The one that's been really volatile is, is Vancouver. Demand has been super heavy in that corridor. And we've seen some concentrated rationing by CN uh, in the Vancouver corridor. And we've seen some pretty spotty, uh, inconsistent performance from CP in the Vancouver corridor. So, you know, not terrible. We've seen worse in the past, but over the last three weeks, kind of inconsistent across the provinces for both railways. And we'll have more with Milt Poirier coming up in just a moment. But first, it's time for your commodities update, and that's a presentation of Hackman Feeds. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading up across the board this hour. January canola trading at 847.40, that's up $11.30. March canola trading at 845.50, up $10.80. December Minneapolis wheat trading at 9.54 per bushel. That's up 13 and three quarters of a cent. December Kansas City wheat trading at 9.16 and a quarter, up 15 and a quarter cents. December Chicago wheat trading at 7.72 and three quarters. That's up 15 cents. December corn trading at 6.62 and a half, down three and a quarter cents. January soybeans trading at 14.70 and a half, that's up 11 cents. December oats trading at 3.90 per bushel, down 2 cents. And that's the commodities update. Now getting back to Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting. He monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. He outlines how CN Rail has been managing demand through Grain Weeks 13, 14, and 15. Well, I think basically through rationing. 
Uh, we didn't see any rationing from CN in week 15, although the seven weeks prior to that, so, you know, from week uh, eight to 14, uh, we saw some consistent rationing. It peaked in week 14, I think, with 800 uh, plus, as I said before, you know, three quarters of that just in the Vancouver corridor. But when you look at CN's demand, it's been very consistent. You know, it, it was very low, obviously, through the month of August. It started to come up, as you would expect, in September, although perhaps a little slower than most people might think. But since week eight, it's been, you know, fairly consistent for the most part in around that 4,800 to 5,200 kind of level. And those are the weeks where we've seen lots of rationing. So, you know, outwardly, uh, what it looks like is that CN has decided that they have a certain amount of capacity to offer each week, uh, which I would argue is probably lower than what they said in their grain plan. And they're managing their demand to those levels or trying to. So week to week, I think they're basically assessing this is the capacity that we've got to offer based on what went on the week before. And this is how much traffic we think we can serve. And anything that comes in over above that threshold that they established, they're basically rationing those orders. Now, having said that, you know, when you look at the fact that over the last three weeks, even though they're keeping their demand tamped down, if you will, they're still not meeting the requirements of the demand that they're planning to serve. So their car spotting performance is down in each of the last three weeks. And they're carrying orders out of each of the last three weeks uh, into subsequent weeks. I think they were almost at 600 coming out of week 13. They were over 500 coming out of week 14. And they managed to knock that down to, I think, less than 350 coming out of week 15. But when you step back and look at the picture and you put together uh, shipper demand against accepted demand against car spotting performance, uh, for me, it, it looks like CN is consciously managing demand by using order rationing and trying to match their car spotting capabilities to the demand that they're accepting. And I think they've kind of said to themselves, you know, if we can hit 85% order fulfillment week in and week out or thereabouts, uh, we're okay with that. And based on public statements by the industry, they should be okay with that too. So that's going to be an interesting scenario to watch play out when winter actually shows up here in earnest. Because as we know, the system slows down when the temperature drops and snow hits the ground. We've had a little bit of it, but nothing serious so far in the West. So it'll be interesting to see if that if that strategy holds uh, or if they try and do something different. Borier then talks about CP rail strategy. Uh, CP is a bit of a different story. Early in the year, we saw CP ration uh, some orders, way more than we've seen from CP, you know, historically for sure. But that's kind of gone away uh, for the most part over the last, you know, six weeks or so. But the interesting thing that we've seen over the last three weeks is shippers have been effectively reducing CP's demand uh, week to week to week by pushing orders that are on the books out into future weeks. And not a small number of orders, you know, we, we're talking about 
anywhere from a thousand to two thousand orders a week that are on the books for a current week and and then when it comes time to measure performance for that week shippers are making decisions to roll those orders forward uh, into future weeks as opposed to you know penalize the railway and you put that you know together with uh, what cp has been doing and that's really what's helped their performance over the last three weeks. I mean, the question people will ask themselves is, well, why are shippers doing that? If their orders are in the books, do they not really need the cars? And the answer is not simple, unfortunately, because nothing in this business generally is. I think there's probably a couple of drivers there. I think one is uh, perhaps a realization from shippers on what is realistic uh, to expect from CP, given poor performance that they've seen and I think they have an understanding perhaps of what CP's uh, capacity is at this point. So they're finding ways to, you know, manage their pipelines and the outflow of that is it's giving CP a break, if you will. And if you look at the demand numbers for CP the last few weeks, they're far lower than they were, you know, in the prior month. And shippers do this as a, as a matter of course, right? I don't think anybody should interpret it as, as shippers looking to give a CP a break in order to, so that their performance looks better publicly, because that's not what, you know, industry is looking to do. It's all about managing their own pipelines, managing their own commitments, managing the performance of their own assets. You know, we know we had heavy rain in Vancouver in week 14, which created problems with rail car unloading because they couldn't load vessels, which resulted in buildup in terminal inventories. So they have to deal with all those issues uh, in addition to the railway service that they're getting. So I think a mix of all of those factors is probably what's prompting shippers to to do what they've been doing, uh, certainly for the last three weeks. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see if that continues. You know, logically, you would think at some point CP is going to pay the piper, if you will, quote unquote, because shippers are just going to need to have those cars to move that grain. But so far, they've kind of demonstrated the ability to manage their way around that. And, and CP has been, from a performance perspective, a beneficiary of those decisions. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. His comments come from the Grain by Train podcast produced by Pulse Canada, a member of the Ag Transport Coalition. It's now 1 o'clock. Please stay tuned. Your agriculture weather is next. The GX94 Precision Weather Forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. A mix of sun and cloud, winds northwest at 15 to 25, then diminishing. A high of minus 18, a wind chill of minus 25. For tonight, cloudy, winds southeast at 20 to 40, a low of minus 22, then rising, a wind chill at times of minus 32. For tomorrow, cloudy with a 70% chance of flurries, 1 to 2 centimeters possible. Winds north-northwest at 15 to 25, and a high of minus 11. For Friday, mainly sunny, winds northwest at 15 to 25 and gusting higher, a high of minus 21 with a wind chill of minus 30. For Saturday, partly sunny, a high of minus 15, and Sunday, a 40% chance of flurries, a high of minus 10. In the Paw, it's minus 21 degrees, Swan River and Dauphin minus 16, 
Brandon, minus 14. Show Lake Russell and Roblin, minus 18. Regina is at minus 17. Saskatoon and Hudson Bay, minus 18. Broadview, Mooseman, minus 20. Indian Head, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington, minus 19. The Yorkton-Melville region has a sunny sky, a west-northwest wind at 9 kilometers an hour. 72% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 20 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 26 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.